0: Hello, good evening, everyone. Welcome, and thank you very much for joining us um, to this very important uh, launch event on um, aged marriage norms for girls in Afghanistan. We have a very esteemed panel with us today to discuss the implications of a new piece of research that we've done in ODI alongside um, Mariam's organization, Drops. But before i introduce our guests a little bit of housekeeping first if i may we'd like to encourage everyone to participate today and um, exchange freely we will come later uh, to you with you to share your questions and insights so please hold them until the discussion opens the dialogue is structured broadly in two parts first we will hear directly from our guests as they unpack the reality of gender experiences right now in afghanistan and then, after we have heard from the panel, we will open the discussion to a Q&A session, which will not be live streamed, it will be just um, between us in the room. So before we start, a bit of context, if I may. After the US completed its withdrawal of military forces from Afghanistan in 2021, the Taliban, as you know, achieved control over the country. The impact on women has been dramatic. Fragile policy gains for women's rights have been reversed, and their access to most opportunities and resources is all but closed. The international community has watched these developments with horror and dismay, and Afghan activists within the country and in the diaspora tirelessly track the erosion of human rights while the global community is still figuring out next steps. Just last week, A UN led meeting of special envoys and representatives on Afghanistan took place to discuss the recent independent assessment and in March, the renewal of the UN mandate on Afghanistan is up for discussion at the Security Council, so with these key policy moments in mind we're convening today's discussion. With three leading experts to Center the voices of those who work on women's rights in Afghanistan. ODI's new report called Changing Social Norms Around Aged Marriage in Afghanistan uses data from DROPS to form a picture of repression and resistance under the Taliban. This new evidence makes visible developments that we have previously tracked only anecdotally. Our research finds that the Taliban edicts have severely blocked progress for women. And this rollback in support for women's rights is threatening to re-entrench restrictive social norms, some that we're beginning to change. The discussion today will explore the implications of our research for international diplomatic efforts to protect the rights of women and girls in the country. And we hope that by highlighting the gendered experiences of insecurity beyond active combat, we can expand the scope of action for international diplomats policies makers and other key actors as they decide on international engagement with the Taliban. So now to help us understand the perspectives of Afghan women and girls, I'm honored to introduce the conversation with our invited speakers today, who will help us unpack the research and its implications for global action. It is my pleasure to introduce Mariam Safi, who is Executive Director of Drops and co-author of this report. Caitlin Williscroft, Caitlin Williscroft, Willis Croft, <laughs> who joins us from UN Women Afghanistan country office and the Women, Peace and Security Program, and she has been based in Kabul since July 2021. And finally, Swita Mohammad Ishaq, who is award winning women's rights advocate, founder of Chaudhuri, and a Women's Peacemaker Fellow. So before getting into the findings of the report, I wondered, Caitlin, if you could, um, given your work, for the UN in Afghanistan. Could you first help our audience by giving us a bit of background context about what has changed for women and girls since the takeover?
1: Great, thanks, Aisha, And thanks to ODI for hosting this event. And it's always a privilege to speak alongside Miriam and Sweeta. So since the Taliban takeover, we've seen an ever-growing number of decrees introduced by the Taliban that seek to control and monitor the lives of Afghan women and girls despite numerous attempts by the international community, the UN regional member states, civil society, not one decree that restricts the rights of women and girls has been reversed or repealed by the Taliban to date. And so as a result, Afghanistan really has truly emerged as a women's rights crisis that is unprecedented in scale, where the kind of the foundation of the Taliban logic for the state and the vision for their their society is linked to the denial of the personhood of and dignity of Afghan women. So UN Women in collaboration with IOM and UNAMA since August 2022, we've been running a series of quarterly consultations with Afghan women inside the country to seek their, their their perspectives on their situation, as well as to seek their recommendations for what the international community should do. So our latest round of consultations took place just two weeks ago, we reached 745 Afghan women from all of Afghanistan's 34 provinces. And so I just wanted to start by highlighting the three changes that we've really seen since August 2021 in the lives of Afghan women. So the first major change that we've seen is that there has been a massive decline of women's influence at the community level. When we first asked Afghan women what they thought their influence was in January 2023, um, they said that 17 percent felt that they had good or full influence at the community level. When we asked this question just two weeks ago, only one percent of women reported that they felt that they have influence over their community. The second data point that I wanted to highlight is that increasingly we're seeing in our consultations the intergenerational impact of the Taliban's decrees on kind of the fabric of society and the structure of the household in particular. So this latest round showed that increasingly boys are internalizing the social and political subordination of their mothers and sisters, essentially reinforcing the belief that women should remain in the home in a position of servitude. Um, Mothers increasingly in our consultations are showing that they have less influence on their children compared to their fathers and that the exposure to the Taliban's misogynistic values is essentially creating the perception amongst boys in particular in the household that women and girls do not have the capacity for leadership, nor for um, the need to have any sort of economic opportunity. And finally, the third major change that we're seeing is again linked to the household influence when we asked in January 2023 if women felt they had influence within their families. 90% of women said yes, we felt we had influence when we asked this question two weeks ago, only 32% of women, one third of participants felt that they had influence over their families. Um, and increasingly what we're seeing is that Afghan women are linking their rights to socioeconomic opportunities, the ability to access education, and the absence of both is directly hindering their influence in the household. So essentially, you know, two and a half years into the, the Taliban's rule over Afghanistan, we've seen this translation of decrees that impact every facet of a woman's life, starting to have, you know, a true tangible impact on the social fabric of society.
0: Okay, so that's a very grim overview, but you can see how um, social norms can change much quicker. You know, in, in just a matter of a few years, you can see how norms that were moving in one direction may well be moving in the other. And I'm just wondering, Mariam, whether you could now step in by giving us the highlights of the research that we did on aged marriage and maybe see how that also um, gives us evidence about changing social norms. Thank you, Aisha, and, and thank you to ODI for hosting
2: today's event. Um, before I go into the key findings, just a little bit about the tools that we used in, in gathering this data. Um, we at DROPS have been conducting surveys regularly since 2020. And we use a community-based approach to carry out tele-surveys, uh, shorthand face-to-face surveys and focus group discussions with our women's peace circles. Now this is a part of our Bishnow initiative. and. A few months after the fall of the Republic, we relaunched our surveys using the same approach, but with one key change. And that was the complete digitalization of our research methodology tools. For this study, in particular, we carried out surveys in 11 provinces, uh, capturing the voices of approximately 2,800 respondents. uh, And we did this both online and in person, including uh, 11 focus group discussions. Something different that we did uh, in this particular survey, um, as opposed to others that we do through Bishnau Bimonthly, monthly is we adapted a survey-based instrument that was originally designed uh, to monitor and evaluate the impact of norm-shifting interventions uh, to ask four key questions. This allowed us to identify the normative expectations, the perceived uh, sanctions for not meeting these expectations, individual beliefs, uh, as well as recent norm change. Now, in terms of the key findings from this study, a few that I'd like to mention to you today. Um, One, we know that early and forced marriages are an ongoing problem in Afghanistan. The drivers of underage marriage for girls are lack of poverty, lack of education and jobs, and restrictive gender norms. Our research found that people, particularly educated women, believe girls should marry above the age of 18, but this belief is much harder to act upon now than before the Taliban takeover. The Taliban's edicts have restricted all opportunities for girls, driving them back into early marriage. The research also shows that families are increasingly marrying off their daughters as the next best step, following the ban on education and employment. Now another shocking finding is that families are using marriage to protect their girls from forced marriage to Taliban fighters. This is because of the widespread perception of unmarried girls above the age of 16 being targeted by local Taliban commanders. And we've found that this has been a reality in several provinces, Kandahar, Fariyab, Jauzjan, Balkh, Baglan, Herat, and Daikundi have all described to us instances where there have been families forced to accept uh, marriage proposals from Taliban fighters. We also found that while early enforced marriages were always more common in rural areas, now what we are seeing is a sharp rise in underage marriage in urban settings, such as district centers and provincial centers. And this has been a direct response to the closure of schools and lack of jobs during the Republic. These factors such as level of awareness, opportunities for education, opportunities for working and no restrictions on mobility had all actually helped to slightly reduce the instances of early marriage. Now, however, this means that young girls and women are unable to convince their families to delay marriage, which is something that they were able to do during the Republic. The problem has worsened by a Taliban edict that says that they cannot leave their homes without a male, without a mahram, a male companion. The humanitarian crisis is worsening the conditions of already vulnerable communities in rural areas, particularly in families that have more than one daughter. Underage and forced marriage is viewed is viewed as a rational response to deal with the crisis. This is why we are seeing more instances of bad exchange of girls for money in more remote areas in the country. The Taliban have, of course, removed access to institutional support. So the support that used to be there during the Republic that women and girls could approach for assistance, of course, no longer exist. However, despite this very grim picture, our focus group respondents still identified many small but meaningful um, acts of everyday resistance to to the Taliban's gender persecution. They re- report a mosaic of low level clandestine activities that bring hope and resist oppression centered on education, income generation and most importantly, importantly, solidarity networks among women and girls in their communities. And I think that has been one of the most uh, interesting aspects of, of this study is where the pockets of resistance continue to exist.
0: Yeah, thanks, thanks, Maryam, for that overview. And I think it's very sobering to think that um, the act of marrying off your daughter potentially is an act of resistance to the Taliban if you do so in the context of fearing for her safety otherwise. Um, I'm wondering, Swita, hearing all this, how that speaks to the work that you do with your networks in Afghanistan. I know you support women and girls in many different ways. And I'm wondering, do these kinds of resistance acts and the ways in which women are trying to survive do these sound familiar to what you do thank you
3: um aisha for the question and first of all i would like to thank odi for hosting this and for Drops for this incredible report and i always say that it's very important to research and back what we say so it's very interesting to see how the things that we have been discussing and talking has this um evidence and um i would like to start regarding the question i'd like to start by kind of explaining certain topics on marriage uh, from the Islamic perspective. Um, So first of all, we all of us must understand that forced marriage has no basis in Islam. Consent is a very important concept uh, in our Islamic law. A girl and a boy must have must know who are they going to marry and must give consent and must be happy with it. And there is one requirement, a key requirement in Islamic law and marriage law uh, that requires both um, a girl and a boy to meet before getting married in the presence of a family member, which is not practiced in, in Afghanistan at all. Like I mean, a lot of families, they just marry off their um, children, um, girls without having that um, discussion before, before marriage. So that's one concept. Another concept that I would like to mention here from the Islamic perspective is is the concept of the um, a girl and a boy must have comprehensive maturity, and that includes emotional, mental, intellectual, and physical maturity, to be able to um, get married. So, and that is such an important concept. Again, not practiced in Afghanistan, unfortunately, and a lot of the families marry off their children and, and girls uh, specifically before they. Um, achieve that emotional, that uh, intellectual maturity, and before they have that sound judgment to to get married, um, and that is why it creates a lot of challenges. It creates a lot of problems once they get married. And um, for example, uh, one of the my volunteers, her cousin, she got married when she was only fourteen years old. And when she got married, she she gave a consent. She she was happy. The reason was that. Her family was facing financial difficulties in her family and um, and her husband's family were better off financially. So she wanted to get married in order to have a better life. However, once she got married, things have changed and her life has turned into darkness. She was not able to continue her education. She she was her in-laws was expecting her to really deal with the heavy house chores. And, um, and she was also not ready to have children during that time. Um, and that led her to have a lot of mental health issues, psychological issues, she even tried to commit suicide and um unfortunately this is very common in afghanistan and this is the story of one girl but we have thousands of girls like this and this is because the families don't consider that emotional and that uh, intellectual maturity of girl before marrying her off and and this is these are all islamic rights that um islam has given to to a girl and uh, right now um as has been discussed to other by other panelists uh, we have multiple crises in Afghanistan, right? We have economic crisis, we have security crisis, we have employment and education crisis, and all of that have made the lives of Afghan women and girls very challenging. And, um, and right now the families are losing hope and as Maryam John mentioned, it's they're losing hope, and that the marriage is has become something as a, the only option left because the families are like, okay, you cannot study, you cannot work, and we have these financial difficulties. This is the only option. And the dangerous part about your research that I found and I I observed also by speaking to people in Kabul is that this reaches. Cities, which is very dangerous, right? We didn't have that in cities before, so now it's very dangerous. So if the policies will not be reversed, if the economic situation will not be improved, and if the mindsets will not be changed, uh, the it's dangerous for like the the future of Afghan women girls is is in a huge uh, danger.
0: Yeah. So. I'm wondering you know you're, you're describing a picture of growing insecurity but it's insecurity and precarity for girls that is a little bit different from what we understand in terms of the security paradigm as one that is free from violent conflict so we might be thinking oh the violent conflict has come to an end and does that mean that security should now um no, no longer be an issue i'm wondering that I, I know that you work caitlin on women peace and security and i'm wondering From your vantage point as a WPS expert also, what does this kind of insecurity mean for how you advance your agenda?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a traditional understanding of security would measure it by things like battlefield deaths, casualties, but when you apply a gender lens to security, there's a much wider set of considerations. It's about, do you feel safe going out on the street? Do you feel safe sending your child to school? It's about violence in the home as well. And so, um, essentially, the absence of battlefield deaths and military combat does not mean that a community would feel safe or people in a country would feel safe. So, again, pointing back to the data that we've collected um, as UN Women, IOM, and UNAMA, in our latest round, we asked the question if women felt. Fe- Um, safe leaving the house without a mahram, a male chaperone, and only 57% of women said that they felt unsafe, so women do not feel safe in Afghanistan, leaving the home independently. Um, We asked women if they trusted their neighbors, if they felt levels of trust in their community, 96% of women that we surveyed reported that they did not trust most people, including their direct neighbors. Um, Throughout 2023, women reported an increasingly worse security situation, for example, in November 2023, half of the women that we consulted reported that they felt their physical security was either bad or very bad. And so this really does challenge the narrative that Afghanistan is a safe safe and stable and secure country. And again, that narrative is challenged when you apply a gender lens to understanding security. Um, the reasons that Afghan women are telling us that they feel safe is overwhelmingly because of the arbitrary, unexpected, and very um, strict enforcement of decrees that the taliban have introduced them that monitor and dictate their lives and this is because increasingly we're seeing a very complex ecosystem of decree enforcement emerge it's not just different segments of the taliban enforcing decrees it's also community leaders it's religious leaders and it's men within the households so our consultations are showing that increasingly male family members particularly husbands and even children are feeling increasing social pressure to protect their families honor. Um, and they feel like they're almost forced to adapt and adopt the DFA's misogynistic values. And so I think this is this analysis is also really borne out in drops research that security is a very gendered experience in Afghanistan, um, given the severity of the women's rights crisis. And I think this really kind of brings the imperative upon the international community to think about security, not just as the withdrawal of troops, but also to look at the gendered implications of security, um, given the, the high levels of insecurity women face across the country.
0: So um, having said all of this about gendered insecurity, I'm wondering that when the UN Security Council meets to discuss the renewal of the UN mandate on Afghanistan, to what extent, Maryam, do you think that this kind of grasp of the gendered insecurity that women are experiencing right now is even figuring in the debate? And, If you could speak to them and ask them what kind of policy recommendations they should make, what would you what would you say.
2: Well, we have been saying this to the Security Council since the fall of the Republic and what we have been telling them is that they have to. um, incorporate and understand the gendered experiences of women in Afghanistan. And that, as Caitlin mentioned, we've done surveys on security as well, and women in Afghanistan don't define their security in traditional security terms. They say we don't have mental security, we don't have psychological security, we don't have individual security. And so they say, yes, the the bombs have decreased and yes, the targeted attacks have decreased. Do I feel safe? No, of course I don't feel safe. So we have been Reiterating at the at the council, um, all of the civil society briefers uh, that are there, um, that we have to make sure that 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 the that UNOMA's human rights component and that UNOMA's uh, monitoring component of human rights violations and the component that looks at the empowerment and protection of women uh, continues to be uh, there, for because every year there's a threat that it might not be there, you know? And so we're constantly fighting to make sure that it is there, that it is supported, and it has the resources it needs to be able to do its job. It's quite important that UNIMA's human rights and women's rights components remain. And this is something, because UNIMA's mandate is coming up for renewal, like you mentioned, now we are at the same point again, at the risk of, of, of having the, these two components either reduced in terms of priority and influence, The international community, I must say, from the experiences I've had, does not prioritize women's rights and human rights and minority rights. They do not. We haven't seen it happen as of yet. Uh, It's a part of the mandate, but it is quite a struggle to to see the effect of the of the mandate uh, on the ground. Um, So it's uh, these are the points that we've reiterated and we will continue to, to do so. Um, and we're making a bit of headway, but it's really an uphill battle,
0: and it's only getting tougher. So there's not much time between now and the March discussion, and I'm wondering, Svita, would you want to add anything to these recommendations? For what would you, what do you think the international community needs to do, like right now, because this is the policy moment. I can talk three hours on that. <laughs> there's a lot that
3: the international community can do and must do, but has not done much. Of like uh, that's kind of my personal um, (laughs) uh, sort of um, opinion is, but um, I think the most important thing is putting the voices of Afghan women and girls at the center of the negotiation. It can be anywhere, for example, right under Doha, right? So the, the gender aspect or the women's crisis should be at the heart of the topic. It should be uh, we have been advocating for a global summit since August 2021 here in the UK, and we've been doing a lot. So because I think we we think that it's very important to have a conference specifically for women focused on Afghan women's experiences. And it's it's such a big topic, right? And it's as we talked about, it's very gendered. It's uh, it includes security, it includes employment, education. It has so many aspects to it. So we really need like a specific summit, personally, and like that we have been advocating for here in the UK. And uh, so putting the Afghan women's voices is very critical. And also, um, I think really it's another critical kind of uh, recommendation that I have is having the Islamic um, uh, putting Islamic uh, scholars in during the negotiations for them to put the Islamic uh, arguments, because uh, we know all of us know that whatever is happening in Afghanistan, whatever policies that the Taliban are imposing on Afghan women and girls is in contradiction to Islamic uh, values and Islamic teachings. Let's take the example of education. Uh, it's compulsory upon every Muslim man and women to seek knowledge and education. And the first word that was revealed in our religion was Iqra, which means read. So it's a complete contradiction to the, what's happening in Afghanistan, right? So bringing those arguments is very critical. Uh, it, they ha- there have been instances where these arguments were brought, but I think we need to continue that. There should be constant negotiation and, and bringing all those Afghan women's voices um, and Islamic lens. Um, Yeah, so to relate to the to the Taliban to kind of challenge their ideology and and their representation of perspective on the on Sharia law.
0: So Thanks. Uh, So it's a it's a combination of keeping women's voices at the heart of international debates and also trying to use strategic tactics like um, reinterpretation of Islam or new interpretation of Islam to kind of counter the Taliban's um, interpretation. Caitlin from somebody who's just come from Kabul and who works inside Afghanistan, what do you think women on the ground need right now from the international community? Because some of what we're talking about is like, you know, high level policy change, but what could we do or what could we mobilize for that would make a difference on the ground?
1: So I want to start by providing a bit of historical context. So Afghan women were excluded from 80% of peace negotiations between 2005 and 2020. The doha agreement in 2020 did not include afghan women and did not include a single reference to women's rights now we have a caretaker administration the taliban no woman in any leadership function so there is a very clear pattern of women's exclusion from international decision-making fora and afghan women on the ground that we consult with on a regular basis are very acutely aware of this And while they may not be at the Security Council, what they tell us in their consultations is similar to what Suyta said. They want a seat at the table. They want their voices not just to be heard, but they want to see the outcomes of these policy discussions reflect their policy priorities. So again, across these consultations that we, we convene, there's kind of four key asks that we hear time and time again. The first is for the international community to directly facilitate opportunities for Afghan women to meet directly with the Taliban. The second is for member states and donors in particular to link international aid to better conditions for women on the ground. Afghan women that we meet with always say that we can't trust the Taliban's promises. We want assessments of their actions to be based on what's happening on the ground. The third most common recommendation we have is that again, Afghan women continue to ask the international community not to recognize the Taliban unless there's tangible improvements to the rights of women. Right now, and based on our latest consultation findings, Afghan women that we consulted really do view the worst case scenario as recognition without improvements on women's rights. And then the fourth thing that we hear often is that, you know, Afghan women want more investment in Afghanistan, particularly on issues related to women's rights and gender equality. They do not want the international community to forget what's happening amidst all of these other geopolitical crises that we're seeing in the world. And so the message, I think, is unequivocally clear. It's do not forget about Afghanistan, do not forget about women's rights, and make sure that women's rights are not traded off when it comes to other discussions such as political, economic, and humanitarian policy for it.
0: Okay, so yeah. yeah, it's really clear. It's really clear, you know, what more can we say? Um, Svita, would you like to add anything to that about um, support to, for example, the kind of work that you do yes. for activists in the diaspora? Yeah.
3: Definitely. Um, Yeah, so great points. I completely agree, Caitlin. But um, so I have certain recommendations. Again, I have many recommendations, so I'll try to uh, talk about the few ones. Uh, um, So on the short term, what we can do uh, on the diaspora side that you asked is that um, I think we have the privilege of having um, of I always have a problem when people say Afghan women don't have voice. They do have voice. We just have to amplify them. So we have the privilege of being able to live in these countries where we have the freedom to say what we can and amplify the voices. So what we can do as an Afghan diaspora is bring the local voices from Afghanistan, using storytelling, using data, everything, research to amplify those voices at the international level and to to lobby, to lobby the governments and to advocate for women's rights. Uh, So that's one recommendation. Another one is supporting local civil society organizations that are working on the ground and that are providing and supporting support uh, providing support to afghan women and girls that's very critical and uh, another critical point is to provide remote educational and employment opportunities so a lot of the organizations that i know of um are trying to teach girls coding for example that they will provide them educational uh, employment opportunities and online so The international community should focus on supporting Afghan women and girls, mainly on the education and employment, because that will help that will empower women directly and they it can be done online, for example. teaching them skills and connecting them with employers here in in the West in other countries and really empowering them Um, and, obviously, that will also indirectly reduce the child marriage as well, because obviously families will be better off financially and they will not get married. So that's um, that's that implication as well. And on the longer term, what I see is that we need a more, we need to educate the public to change the perspective of people, the perception about gender norms how harm from gender norms. So that's a more long term strategy. And that, again, includes because in Afghanistan, People listen to what the Islamic scholar says uh, and they believe them, um, whatever they say. So, finding Islamic scholars who understand marriage issues, for example, and like employment, education from the Islamic perspective, and teaching them to the public and uh, to, to really change that perspective. And uh, awareness raising to boys, uh, for example, changing their perspectives, uh, working with local communities. Again, like the awareness raising should be a long term um, strategy that will take more time. However, the the immediate actions are the ones that I mentioned.
0: So what I'm hearing, though, is that we're looking at some kind of like holding measures. We want to keep having access to communities inside Afghanistan to keep giving them the opportunities that might be otherwise denied, while still trying to strategically negotiate with the Taliban that in return for recognition, you mustn't cross um, further red lines on gender. So it could be a strategy. But what I'm wondering is that given the fact that they didn't even turn up to the meeting in Doha last week, to what extent is this kind of strategic approach actually going to be possible if you don't have an interlocutor across the table. Maria? <laughs> <laughs> any thoughts? Um, well,
2: I think that when the Taliban didn't show up to Doha, I think that it was a missed opportunity on part of of the de facto authorities, and also uh, the people of Afghanistan, they should have been there. And uh, I think it would have given them an opportunity to understand where the international community's position on some of these issues are, as well as the Afghan civil society organizations that were there, though they weren't going to talk to each other face to face, but it I think it would have been a critical, uh, I think it would have been a really critical moment. Um, now, having said that, um, the, the United Nations, the reason why they did the assessment was because they had reached an impasse. And so it was the chicken and the egg sort of situation. Uh, do we give recognition and then wait to see for the Taliban to make changes, because that's what they're saying they'll do, Or should they make some changes and then we can we can give them recognition, and I would say, for this part, the international community uh, has been quite compromising they haven't said okay remove all edicts and then we'll give you recognition they've said remove the ban on education remove the ban on employment. And then we can certainly, talk, and I and I think that the international community would actually jump and, and give recognition just if they were to meet those very low-hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. It's really what that is. Mm-hmm. But the Taliban have not been compromising. They're they, they think it's still the peace process, and they think they're negotiating with the Republic. And so they're thinking, okay, we're gonna we're gonna stand strong, and they're gonna kneel. The United Nations, the international community is gonna kneel. And so my what I've been talking to uh, in terms of what, what state members and urging them to do is don't kneel uphold the Charter. Uh, two things that the independent assessment made quite clear, which uh, we produced a shadow report on it and we've highlighted those two aspects as being positive in the report. The, the report has a lot of other difficulties uh, in it uh, is one that Afghanistan and the de facto authorities must up, uphold and respect the state's obligations to international under international law. And any sovereign state should be able to do that. That's the first. And the second is to respect the rights of its citizens. And so those two aspects of the assessment were well founded by Afghan civil society. And the Taliban should show signs that they are moving towards this for the international community to think of uh, uh, of, of any sort of integration into the international system which i interpret as recognition Um, but uh, as i said we don't see those steps being taken by the taliban and moving forward the international community should uh, continue to make uh, engagement is important discussion and dialogue is important but in our discussions with women in afghanistan and i would say afghan women Yes, they have a voice and we don't need to amplify them. They're very loud. We have to listen to them. That's all we need to do is we just need to listen to to what they are asking for. And so if um, uh, what they're asking for is engagement, but principled engagement. They're asking for principled engagement, and it, I think it's quite important um, because I did find something kind of concerning when I was reading the press release from, UNAMA, where uh, the uh, Secretary General said that um, that they're going to improve the conditions to ensure that the Taliban come to the next Doha meeting. Okay,
0: and I don't <laughs> know what that means. So, so you're 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 talking about do politics do politics be strategic, but don't give up on the UN Charter. No, they shouldn't <laughs> if they give up on the UN Charter. I mean, They're the UN should just there. yes. Okay, so thank you very much uh, to our panelists for um, this first round of Q and A's. Uh, and now what we'll do is we'll take the conversation offline, if that's okay, and we will um, have an in-house Q and A session where you can feel free to ask any questions that um, you may like. And um, we can take it from there. But first, a round of applause to our panelists, and thank you.